dive into a bit of a curveball uh dr robert whitfield is joining us and when you think of plastic surgery you think about adding on you know what uh, what can i customize and make better you don't often think about removing and this is where there's a new phenomenon where there's some pi- people pioneering the healthcare that's uh, or the health concerns that plastic surgery are, is able to sort of resolve and there's certain hidden pain points that come out of implanting things into your body for certain people not for everybody certain types of implants as well that lead to severe issues that may express as autoimmune may express as a variant variable different things and there's people like dr whitfield who've gone out pioneered saying that maybe we need to do something about this so thank you first of all for joining us yes thanks for having me i know you've been in surgery all day since uh you know 6 a.m we're into the evening now and you know thanks for making the time uh, and just, you know, to color this for everybody, in Toronto, uh, a few years back where we are, and by the way, uh, Robertson in Austin and Texas, um, we had an article come out in Toronto, in the Toronto Star, which is the biggest newspaper in the city, biggest newspaper in the country, actually, that talked about a lady who was severely ill and blamed it on her breast implants. So she went to see a clinician who then removed those implants and she all of a sudden started to feel better. And they tracked this outcome for a few months and they said that they believed that was the root cause. They didn't truly understand why, but there was this trend, these sort of cornucopia of autoimmune type uh, expression of disease that can't you can't really put your finger on it. And all of a sudden you remove through a procedure called the explant, which you do, uh, the implant, and all of a sudden you start to feel better. And so the response here in Canada was that they figured it was about a particular type of implant. So there's an older modality where it's more textured and you know they, they, they basically said this version of implants are bent. They're no longer Health Canada approved. They didn't dig deeper into you know the sort of root cause of what was going on. So it's awesome to have you join us because we've talked to plastic surgeons about this before, but nobody's dove in the way you have or you're actually doing clinical research on this. You're, you're testing things and First of all, tell us about some of these women and their, their stories. Like, what, what do they feel? What's the problem that they complain about? I think, uh, you know, there's two things. Like, I, I like having dispassionate, you know, uh, talks about this because whatever is scientific, you know, I want to be able to pass on to my clients. So the, the journey started about seven years ago with a, a breast cancer patient who had relocated and found me and wanted to have her implants removed. I hadn't really had many people ask me for that. Right. But as somebody who did a lot of oncologic reconstruction, I had done it many times over the years. She particularly asked me to do an in-block resection of her implants. And so that was an unusual request. I hadn't ever had anybody ask me to do that. In-block is really a you know pathology term or a term you use when resecting tumors. You take them out in-block, which is in total, right. without disruption. So um, I was able to you know fulfill that request for her. And um, I had to do it at a hospital setting because she had to be monitored overnight for another medical condition. And this is when I did a lot of, like I said, oncologic reconstruction. So I did that. And um, 
if your viewers aren't familiar with lab testing, CLIA-based lab testing is what's done in a hospital and many outpatient laboratories. So it's either quantitative uh, tissue sampling or swabs. And we had done swabs on her and sent tissue samples. And like I would always send for a cancer patient of any variety, the specimen to be reviewed to make sure there was no um, new form or re you know recurrent cancer. So hers came back with an E. coli infection. It's all crazy. You have to have a lot of bacteria in a CLIA-based lab setting in a hospital to have a frank E. coli infection found. So this was pretty startling to me because I did all of her consultative process. Um, I did her preoperative examination. She never had any signs or symptoms of infection that were external, that were physical, nothing on laboratory analysis. She had one thing that I'll never forget. She had incredible fatigue. Yeah. And so I got this you know, information back and I treated her appropriately with antibiotic therapy. And within a month, she was like a totally different person. Hmm. So it was pretty startling to me to have that experience. And that shaped how I viewed kind of patients moving forward. And then I don't know if it was her or, or another patient who put me on uh, some kind of referral or forum or something. But I started to have cosmetic patients show up, not mine, but just, just self-referred for explants. And I was like, this is really strange, but okay. And because of that experience, I never looked at somebody the same way again, because obviously I didn't know that that patient had an infection. Now I thought I'm a good clinician. I've taken care of many, many patients. I would never think I would miss an exam where somebody had an infection. Um, but this was my, you know, I missed it. Um, so it kind of began this explant process that now I've done over 500. I've done several with a very specific testing technique, because if you use clear based lab testing, you will miss a lot of cases that have bacteria, but not enough bacteria to, you know, be registered as an infection. So 10 to the fifth is usually what you need to get registered as an infection in a clear based lab. But I switched to DNA testing using PCR analysis in February of 2019 after I had an ICU nurse travel to see me from out of state. I did her case. She clearly had biofilm. You could, it was all over the place. It was slimy. Hmm. And I went out and told her husband, I'm like, you know, she's going to do so much better after this because this was clearly infected. I'm just going to wait for the laboratory analysis to show me how to take care of it. And it came back nothing. And I just looked like an idiot because this lady clearly was had a biofilm and I didn't have the right technique to tell what it was. And so I put drains in her as I did always. She drained for weeks, just fluid, just fluid. And I had no way to do anything differently because I was let down basically by the technique. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to some colleagues um, and uh, the original ALCL testing uh, was done at a laboratory in Lubbock, Texas called Microgen. So I started using Microgen for all of my testing on all of my samples. And so now we have a consecutive 389 samples. Um, if you look at the positivity rate, it's 50 to 60% in that first like 250 or so. 
And then because of COVID, I had a much different kind of demographic start to come see me. People stopped flying from around the United States to see me. People, it was more of a local uh, phenomenon. So also I've done a lot of just implant problems, capture mm -hmm. contractures, things of that nature. Um, uh, so you went from the sort of anecdotal women knew they felt better and you saw the result to not being able to measure then all of a sudden you out of your own volition this wasn't a requirement or a need or part of the process but you were trying to dig deeper like why and how do i prove this and i i can see there there's change but what's going on and you've been on that journey and you started doing the pcr testing and you've started to identify the biofilm and these you know microorganisms that are wreaking havoc you know on they're really in interesting too like people don't know like you can get your root canal done and infect your breast implant right with provitella, which is only found in the mouth. Right. So if you find it on breast implant or in someone's urine, then it, they became bacteremic from it, which is basically what's happening with these things that, I mean, none of this is that complicated when you think about it critically. Someone has a hip knee or breast implant, they get a blood borne and, uh, you know, exposure to bacteria or fungus, and then it attaches to the device. I mean, for sure. Yep. And this is where, so th there's a question of, okay, this has happened, right? And why is it that some women do okay and some it's a disaster? And this is where we, I mean, we had a brief conversation on the genetics behind it and the various cellular processes that are required to cope with that load, meaning that, okay, I'm causing myself an inflammatory insult. Can I actually cope with that genetically? I'm causing myself a sort of a toxic insult that my body needs to now clear can i actually handle that and we aren't all built the same this is why you said there's some variability between how these women's experience you know and i mean how bad does it get like do you see women that are literally bedridden that say like i just can't do anything i mean the the fatigue you know when i hear that complaint i automatically go to that first experience i had where i worry about infection mm -hmm. but if it persists after explant then I think that there's a SNP, or as you've taught me recently, there are other things involved with, you know, a lack of copies or inability to to or metabolize certain elements that are, are contributing to their stress. And these people are under tremendous stress. Right. And that's that's part of the issue. So I try to educate and put them on a good nutritional pathway and supplement pathway. But there are other things, obviously, I don't know. Yeah. And on the stress side, this is where we found, you know, regardless of what we're speaking of today, you kind of take this out of context to any sort of context where there's a pain load, there's something causing me a problem. The experience, you know, the, the clinical experience now is you ask questions. It's like an objective measure, like, you know, tell me, give me feedback and I'll kind of figure out with my checklist what's going on. But you're, what you're really getting is the person's perception. Right, you're, you may not actually get the true measure. You're, you're, how are they experiencing the stress? How are they experiencing the anxiety, the pain? For me personally, I can handle a lot of pain physically, right? I can handle a lot of stress mentally. What I can't handle is seeing somebody else being hurt. For me, that's a trigger, right? Like I have to go help them, protect them. So it depends what you desire. And this is where, you know, there may be that woman that's suffering greatly but isn't even complaining. And then there's the other woman for whom it's a 2% problem that feels like 98, right? The flip opposite. So, uh, and, you know, understanding sort of the genetics of neurochemicals allows you to navigate in any context, regardless if it's this or something else, right? So, yeah, so moving forward, 
you've now, like you said, over 500 explants. You know, I doubt if I, you know, most people that are listening maybe haven't even heard the term, right? It's, it's so underserved. But how many women do you think are out there? You know, like you said, it's 50, 60% of the women that actually come to you for a procedure that you've actually nailed down. Oh, here's the root cause. Here's a problem. How many women are out there that don't even know that this is what's going on? I think it's a good question. I mean, there's about 300,000 implants or a little over that put in per year in the U.S. So, um, you know, it's a large, I think, a large problem. And it is it is underserved. It is. Um, I gave testimony at the FDA in 2019 about um, the phenomenon breast implant illness, which, you know, was created basically out of, of the the. Uh, these women's understanding of like, what is this? You know, there, there wasn't, mm -hmm. there's not a clinical, you know, term for it. And, you know, I was a past president of a research foundation and I, I was bothered by the term and knowing what I know about biofilm and, and how many people have it, you know, to me, it's like, how many folks have, this is the problem, right? Folks have maybe a mechanical problem, scarring, nerve entrapment, pain from, you know, this the device itself placement whatever those issues are mechanical and then this i always said 30 percent of it's definitely genetic predisposition i just don't know to what i don't know right. i used to think it was a series of snips and you know uh mthfr like we talked about is always blamed but i'm mthfr positive as well so i i, I think you know understanding and tailoring your therapies more towards a person's own individual genetics is always going to be the the best way to do it if in fact you can do it if you can yeah first of all call it diagnostic like knowing what's wrong and then knowing what to recommend right so uh, it, this is a unique problem that kind of um in terms of something that's so anti a existing call it pharmaceutical product right that typical friction or resistance you have when you you know push against that wave versus how quickly this actually spread wildfire in terms of within the, you know, call it breast implant community, like women with implants and you discuss it. And it, I, it's, to me, it seems like it's a social media phenomenon because you see all these women that are in these Facebook groups that are learning, joining, learning, joining. And there's groups that have north of 100,000 women talking about their problems and how to help and which doctor to go to, talking about you and a couple other people, for example. Uh, and that's part of the reason why in the mainstream, you don't really hear about it, right? But it 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 the wave came quick and hard, and all of a sudden there's this industry of explants, like plastic surgeons that are removing implants instead of putting them in, you know. And um, so, how how sort of do, do these women sort of find you, or they understand that you're the guy? Like, because a typical per there's a lot of plastic surgeons that actually refuse to do this this work. I think initially it was like you said, purely through you know Facebook. Um, I, I think that client I mentioned to you initially, somehow through that, I ended up on one of those uh, right. sites. And, um, I think I am not, um, I, I think, you know, the, the, the actual premise is good. Like, Hey, you're joining this to learn something. And, um, this group of doctors or in your area can help you. But there's a lot of disinformation and kind of, of mm, 
things that yeah. don't make a lot of sense are passed on in terms of medical advice, right? right? So I've done, you know, thousands of operations since 1996 when I trained. I've been exposed to shared decision making about complicated problems my entire career. And right. <laughs> I figured out a way to solve this problem for myself, but it's really helped everybody who I take care of because, you know, I understood you know, PCR analysis was the way to find out exactly what was the problem on my suspicion of that initial case. And instead of just relying on a CLIA-based lab test and, you know, we've tried to adapt our, you know, program to be more encompassing for nutrition and hormone balancing so that we're trying to, you know, treat as many of the elements of the, mm -hmm. what could be, you know, just the root causes, if it's just the implant, but I take care of pre, peri and postmenopausal women. They're all very different and mm -hmm. they need different pathways. So we're trying to do all that. And now people find me from word of mouth because I've done so many in Texas, but um, more and more people as COVID is not relaxing, but you know, there's a little bit more uh, openness in the, in the country. People are traveling again to see me. Right. Oh, and these women that come to see you, so they've gone through the procedure, the implants removed, there's some rest period. What are the recommendations after the fact? Like other lifestyle changes, environment, like is there anything supplementary to the actual surgery that, you know, gets better success rates? I mean, yeah, that's a great question. I've used a nutritionist for a long period of time who's familiar with BII and Lyme. So okay. I've, I've leveraged that resource. And then we've gone to doing, like we discussed some, more uh diagnostic testing for you know just genomics and trying to get them straight on their diet but then you know the dna company i hope to have as the final uh sure <laughs> we'll get there <laughs> yeah and that's funny that you mentioned lyme because that brings me back to the the testing where that the fact that you pointed that out in the work that the nutritionist is doing or the dietitian um the our research it's the same genetic pathways that lead to the over-exaggerated expression of pain from these two conditions. So meaning that you've nailed it where you're saying, and you're, you're already ahead of the curve in what you're doing anyway, like you're dealing with a problem that people don't even know exists for the most part, you know, but uh, the fact that you're looking at nutrition and diet protocols that correlate when it comes to Lyme and BI, because it, it truly genetically, it's the same, not the disease, it's different. You know, here's a, a bacteria from a tick, right? here's some sort of infection or, you know, uh, call it more of like a cytokine style response, the body fighting this implant, right? Um, but the expression of it and to what degree do you actually feel it or that's anti-inflammatory methylation, which like you said, goes beyond MTHFR, this one study gene to an entire system. There's seven or eight supporting characters in that, in that system that you could be suboptimal. You could be the best MTHFR, you know, you have the best genetics there and then everything else sucks. And then what does that mean, right? And we're not looking at that. So, yeah, so we see that exactly. We, we actually worked on a Lyme study here in Canada with a clinic who has seen more Lyme patients than any clinic in Canada. It's an epidemic here, by the way. Health Canada's straightforward said that, that we have a big problem with Lyme in Canada. Um, and we found that of the women, not the men, but of the females, 30% of them who are diagnosed and being treated for Lyme disease didn't have it. What they actually had was estrogen toxicity. The exact, yeah, and this is why they weren't getting a solution because whatever, like taking some kind of pill to get rid of the bacteria 
doesn't help reduce estrogen toxicity, right? So the symptomology, and it goes back to methylation, detox, the same core uh, system failures. I don't methylate properly. I don't detox properly. Well, attach that to either an implant, to Lyme disease or estrogen toxicity, I end up with the same result. This kind of autoimmune fatigue, brain fog, joint pain, you know? I was actually texted by a doctor this morning. What are the symptoms like? And so I listed all of those and yeah. I said, it's a lot like Lyme. Yeah, it's a lot like- He texted me back, he's like, oh my God, this person's being treated for Lyme. Yes, exactly. And this is where you can, the questions, again, that objective experience of like, okay, here, I see this, I see this, check, 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 it equals that, right? And that's the way you're sort of processed. And I understand that also because you need to be, somebody has to be able to recognize what things point to. But those things that are expressing the pains and the aches and the head brain fog and all that are not a condition. That's the body being overwhelmed by the insult, whether it is the bacteria or it is, which again, the Lyme bacteria, which causes the inflammatory response, whether it is the implant, which causes the inflammatory response, whether it is estrogen toxicity, which causes the exact same inflammatory response, right? So this is where understanding system-wise what's going on, you can already predict what problems you could potentially have if you had the wrong load applied to it, that bacteria or that, et cetera, right? So, yeah. I, so that, I, I, I agree with you. The estrogen, mm, big problem. Yeah. yeah. Big problem. Have you, have you worked on any hormone replacement therapy? We do it here because I, I got disenchanted with the um, attention to detail provided by the uh, other primary caregivers, I'll say. Right. <laughs> but um, it's very important in terms of a patient's recovery to have proper um, diet, both pre and post, and the proper um, pre and post supplements and hormone balancing is a huge deal for me. So I will not operate on a pre, peri or postmenopausal woman without knowing their hormones, their thyroid and their um, sex hormones, because if you stay like, what do you think's changed more? How I do something? No. Right. Tools. I have great training. I have a ton of experience. The patients change all the time. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to level the playing field by putting them on a, you know, to be honest, a gluten-free, you know, dairy-free diet with a lot of hopefully more plant-based protein and to reduce inflammation. I put them on curated supplements to reduce inflammation, promote recovery. Um, I look at the hormones to make sure that they're balanced. I make sure that somebody's, you know, never been, who's never been diagnosed with Hashimoto's is, is being, you know, taken care of, or somebody who's, you know, uh, estrogens all out of balance. It's being taken care of, or it's being looked at They're testosterone which is undetectable is being treated because mm -hmm. if you don't have women need like one twelfth to one sixteenth the testosterone a male needs if they don't have it they're going to lack energy they're not going to be able to recover after surgery very well mm -hmm. it's none of this is that complicated but inevitably i get people who have been put on creams and potions and lotions and don't really <laughs> get a benefit from it because it may raise their uh, level in their blood to a degree, but it has no effect on their symptoms. They right. still feel and lack energy. They have no libido. Their hair falls out. I mean, I mean, 
Yeah, that's a common, we get that a lot where there's, so, okay, androgens are low, low testosterone. Logical next step, give me testosterone, right? But if you understand the genetics of the pathway, which you do because you see these patients, having low testosterone doesn't necessarily don't mean that I don't have enough testosterone. It may mean that I quickly convert it all into estrogen or I clear it, right? So everybody makes testosterone, whether you're a man or a woman, and men generally make the same amount. It's just, uh, well, starting from your progesterones and then going into testosterones, but how quickly do you do each step or do you even do each step, right? You make like convert it all into DHT and be a ripped Superman like Dwayne Johnson, you know, with all the big muscles and you can easily get ripped, no fat, um, and estrogen isn't a problem. But for those men or women who convert it all into estrogen, give me testosterone, I just convert it all into estrogen anyway. So it doesn't affect the outcome I want. I may need to actually block conversion. I may need to stop the testosterone converting into estrogen or stop converting into DHT or stop clearing it just so I have the healthy pool for longer. And this is where a lot of these guys get things wrong, where I know you're moving, uh, sorry, you're working more in the future of medicine than most people, but a lot of guys get that wrong. It's unfortunate. We literally have an NHL hockey player who we've spoken of earlier that came to us with gynomastia because he was taking an, an and what's called an androgen gel pack right? So it's like a testosterone gel on his belly that all got converted into estrogen. And when he started to grow the man boobs, what did his clinician say? Oh, we didn't give you enough. You need more, right? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it was after, it was after that second helping that he came to us and, you know, we kind of reversed things. So, so just imagine that's what's going on out there. So, but that's awesome because most practices we've heard of, you know, it's kind of siloed. I'm a plastic surgeon. That's what I do. You want to talk about your hormones go talk to somebody about your hormones. Right, but you bring it all in. Right? Yeah, I think you, you know, for us, my 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 goal is to be the best anti-aging center we can be. Uh, right. You have to be able to manage all those elements and understand genetics and epigenetics if you're going to do that. So we're always keen to learn more. Sure, that's cool. So when it comes to anti-aging, what is it that women are asking for? Is it that they it's just outward beauty, like I want to look better, or is it truly like I want to have the vitality I, I want to be able to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Like, what is it that they want? Yeah, I think they don't, you know, because they don't see me as a functional medicine practitioner. I don't get people coming for vitality. Right. For the most part. I mean, I have people routinely looking for changes externally. How can we slow down the, you know, visible signs of aging? You know, how can I affect a wrinkle or a fold? How can I get my skin, you know, looking better, brighter, um, and I have the same philosophy <laughs> that, you know, the body will do exactly as it's told. So if you injure it, it will heal it. So if you can't create enough of an injury, you'll never get anybody to look better. So right. it doesn't matter if it's non-invasive or minimally invasive. I use a company out of Canada in mode, which uses bipolar radio frequency treatments that are non-invasive and minimally invasive. And so I leverage all of their technology to create the cellular the, the injury level that is needed at the cell level to get the response for neocollagen synthesis, for elastin production, uh, the things that really make you look better. Right. That's awesome. So, and now in that work, you know, we find that uh, at least here, and I'm not sure of the climate down there, but there's often uh, taboo in the lobbying groups that are want other solutions preventing. So for example, this, I know this for a fact is happening right now in the U.S. where BHRT is under attack. The lobbying groups are saying that compounding 
pharmaceuticals isn't safe, even though we, we understand how simple and safe it actually is, because it's reducing the usage or consumption of other stuff, right? So, yeah, so we're, we're finding that all of a sudden things that are innovative uh, that are truly dealing with the root cause, which need to be compounded, they're personalized and they're, they're, they're custom, right? You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And all of a sudden you have this BHRT wave, hormone replacement therapy, that's really helped people, like the people you're talking about, uh, at a personalized level. So I get what I need, not what this bottle hopefully works on me or not, right? Uh, has come under attack. So are you getting any of that in that whole sort of anti-aging space? Or are you kind of isolated and protected from that kind of pharma wave? I mean, it is a problem. I I get messages from the compounding pharmacies we use uh, regarding this because I do also use um, uh, and make you know, IV drips for folks. Okay. And the same pharmacy that provides um, that provides the, you know, uh, testosterone, estrogen. Um, and so I think, you know, obviously there are a lot of great things about my, my uh, country and there's a lot of things that I would like to see done better, but money and politics always drive everything that happens. <laughs> and, and that is basically the deal. So um, I don't think completely that um, that will be, change but you see the fda make very sweeping you know changes about like um uh thymocin right so it was taken away just like bam just like that i had it one week and the next week i didn't yeah <laughs> i got a, i got an email that said hey if you want to get this you better order it now yeah and i was like oh okay because we were doing peptide you know therapy and all of a sudden, one of the major players in that was taken away. And so, you know, I, I think um, it's it's disappointing because um, we, we just are trying to do the best things that are at the right, uh, you know, treatment points for, for clients that will help them. And it doesn't help every single client. You just don't get Kashif on ipamorelin and thymusin alpha and thymusin beta and he get magically better. It doesn't work like that for everybody. Like if you don't need it, then it's not going to help you. Right. It's like, I don't, I don't, I don't give every male testosterone because not every male needs to have replacement depends on, you know, them and their symptoms and their labs and, you know, make educated decisions. So I'm hopeful that things will not get disrupted, but I think I've learned to live in a disruptive way. <laughs> So you got to work around it. Yeah. And then, so then in doing that, I mean, here we have a single, very different system. We have a single payer. You know, we have the Ontario government that pays everybody's bills. And as we're, as a company starting to work more in the U.S., we're learning how complex, even just state by state, city by city, sometimes, you know, there's a federal law, then there's a state law, and then there's a local, you know, region city law that overrules all of it. And all of a sudden, you have to truly navigate and specialize and understand. So you would, I mean, you were the president of, what was the actual organization? Okay, so now in that position, I'm sure, you know, the whole bureaucracy behind some of the stuff we're talking about, you would have seen. So has there been a push to put BIA sort of front and center and say, here's something that people should offer or has it been has there been resistance or i think you know really the fda hearings you know they fda came to us and said hey well, you know what's the deal with this right. and, 
and they use a Canadian expert to give testimony on the uh, the first day, I believe, the main uh, day, and then I gave public testimony on the second or third day. Um, but it's on the FDA's radar here. It's on the society's radar, both the Aesthetic Society and the, the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. Um, I think the problem is like we tried to fund studies and then COVID happened. Mm -hmm. So those studies never actually took off. I was president at the time when they we passed the funding for them. And then, you know, COVID happens. Changed everything. And nothing ever can be done. Um, and I feel more and more, you know, comfortable and confident that we do have a better handle on it in terms of my thinking about it. Now, how pervasive that thinking is, I think that's still limited in in the world, especially. But more and more people who are prominent are, um, I think, taking the stance that, you know, it is a problem. It needs to be addressed. Um, certainly, there are fundamental problems with texture devices that we all know about, and they've been pulled from the markets. And we're dealing with that whole kind of it's a lot slower to me than it should be. Like I, I would see if, if, if you had a texture device in, it doesn't matter when it was placed, I would go see your plastic surgeon and get a consultation regarding that specific device and the latest, you know, update on ALCL because you need to be followed carefully with that mm -hmm. device in place. Now, if it's a smooth saline or silicone device, um, there's never been a case of ALCL. So that's a cancer. Right. Um, and then, you know, in terms of BII, we don't know the numerator and denominator, so I can't give you the prevalence of that. Right. You know, I can give you my audit, my experience. And when I see it come through the door, I know what it is. I, I'm not confused by it. And I, you're shaped by your experiences as we all are. And so mine's been very different. You know, people ask me about my COVID experience. <laughs> my dad died of COVID in May of... Oh, wow. Sorry to hear. And we've had several of my team members, grandparents die here in Austin. So for us, it's a very personal thing. When you come to our office, there's very strict guidelines on how you get in because there's a certain level of anxiety here. Right. So we don't want uh, anybody to be unsafe. We want the best for everybody. But you're shaped by those experiences. Yeah, by your experiences. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like there's an honest effort and you know the awareness is there you helped pioneer that awareness and it's a question of it's hard to make it fit the sort of fda mold meaning it's not a disease per se right it's an inflammatory response um and then what do you then blame do you blame the implant or you would blame the person's uh in, a, in the inability to deal with the inflammatory response you know what, what is actually the condition right and Right, that's a complicated question. Yeah, yeah, and and as honestly, so it's it's it, it could have been triggered by something else, and this is why we say Lyme, toxic estrogen. It's a, this triangle of in the middle, you got this in person who has a poor inflammatory response, triangulated by or forgot about go to hexagon, go go to however many points you want. There's so many triggers that could to lead to that. So that's where this thing. I mean, I don't think it will quickly come to a finite here's how we handle this you know we just need more people like you that are dealing with it and helping women um and i mean you mentioned austin up here we're hearing just off topic we keep hearing news about that that city just completely changing because of the silicon valley exodus 
And you know, yeah, I thought you would want to relocate here when you were mentioning places to go, but yeah. I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, we're we're thinking. So we actually uh, there's a city just outside of Houston. I can't recall the name. Uh, there's like ten minutes from the airport that offered us money to move there. Yeah, and be careful, Houston. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so they were close to uh, Baylor and there's a lot of good medical facilities down there where we thought we could do some good research, but they literally were saying they would build up, build us a facility. Uh, they'd give us land, et cetera, et cetera. And then one of the city uh, councilors, I think, was telling us how we could hunt alligator and eat it for lunch right behind the location. We saw we'd, we're not really acclimatized to that type of thing. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yes, so Austin, but uh, apparently the city is completely changing because of what's happening with everybody moving from California. Yes, the tech. uh, I don't know who's going to be left in the Bay Area soon. They're all basically coming here. And um, uh, there's very like, it's always been a very unique city, I think, because it's it was meant to be a smaller city. It's on the Colorado River. But now it's like the the Manhattanization of the place is right. shown up. So, you know, it's population density now, and um, it's not the quaint little place anymore. No kidding. And do you see, do you see like a political shift? I mean, all of a sudden you have a very different culture coming into the city, like too many vegan sandwiches. Well, no, Austin's <laughs> always been, Austin's always been a liberal city. A very liberal city. Okay. Yeah. It's the blue dot in Texas. Oh, no kidding. Okay, so just and I guess that's why everybody's flocking there because they feel comfortable, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, this is by far the most liberal city. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. So then, I mean, first of all, the work you're doing is awesome. I mean, I can't tell you in the work we've done. There's there's advocacy groups that we've started sort of talked to to sort of help them on the knowledge side. You know, what can they do? How do they help? Okay, I've removed. I've done the X plan. Now what? Right. So that's kind of what we do. Our job is the now what part, like why did it actually cause you the problem that your methylation detox, whatever, I mean, even the mood of behavior. And I can't tell you how many plastic surgeons that we talk to that don't even acknowledge that this is a real problem. Right. right. And it, it's, it's yeah, it's a limited understanding thing. Chief. I mean, yeah. it's hard, you know, yeah. I did not have that initial experience. You, it, I would have been like forever kind of maybe in the dark. Right. right. It just that happened for me. And, it, and then irritated me that I couldn't figure it out and I didn't have the right answer. So I right. just looked for the right answer. Yeah. So that's awesome. I mean, the work you're doing is great. You're going to hopefully continue with the research now that, uh, you know, COVID things are slowing down, we get back to the clinical and whatever we can do to support, we're happy to jump in. But want to thank you for joining us today, spreading the gospel, because I think women need to hear this. You know, so many people that are, I'm sure are going to hear this like, wow, that's what it is. I didn't even think about that. And that's all we wanted to get done today was make sure that more people get sort of uh, healthy, right? So thank you again for, for joining us and sharing. Thank you.